Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. That's Michael Harold. Hello. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Michael, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let people know who you are, where you work, yeah, why, why you're that. famous? I wouldn't say I'm famous. I'm definitely not famous. So I am a husband of a wonderful woman who's an economist. And then I have a seven-month-old daughter who is taking up most of my time these days. I'm a uh, staff engineer at Flywheel. We're a company that makes a delightful WordPress hosting for designers and creatives. So we make it really easy for them to host their websites. We do this all with Ruby and a variety of other technologies, but I program Ruby all day despite working for a WordPress company. So cool. So you write Ruby programs to be able to support PHP programs. I, I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for the, the comment. So that's a, that's a common thing that people are like, wait, what? Yeah, so our application, we have a monolith application written in Rails, and that does all of the orchestration and CRUD and everything, billing for all of our customers' sites. And that coordinates with uh, some APIs that run a variety of different platform as a service platforms that we have. So what most of the developers at the company do is write Ruby code. And then the platform team does you know platform type things with, with YAML and Chef and a bunch of other things. So... Cool. Cool. So you gave a talk at RailsConf and you were talking about pricing, which is kind of funny. You know, we're on this Ruby podcast and we're going to talk about money. We're not going to talk about how to program money, except we're going to talk about how to program money. (laughs) So can you kind of frame the problem for us a little bit and give us an idea of, of where to start thinking about this? The frame for the problem is that whenever you have an idea where you want to go create a business out of it, you eventually get to the question of how, how on earth do I price this thing? And Pricing is an area that is ripe for inefficiencies, both on the customer part and on the business part. So the idea behind the talk was to give a simple framework that is taken from the the field of market research that helps you get an idea of what to price your product or service at. Model is called the Van Westendorp Price Sensitivity Meter, if you want to look that up. And the idea is that you talk with your customers and see how they would value it. What I like to think about is that if you've taken an economics class, so my wife, I said, is an economist, so I I talk about economics a lot. If you've taken an economics class, you've probably seen the the typical supply and demand curves. What you might not know there is in, in certain areas of the graph, if you end up pricing too high or too low, you might end up with something called consumer surplus or producer surplus, where producer surplus is that you are making you are getting more than you than you think you deserve out of it, out of the, the exchange, and consumer surplus is the, the 
opposite. So consumer surplus, your customers think they're getting a great deal for their value. If you're a solopreneur or a part of a very small business, it can be useful to think about that consumer surplus as a way to market. So if your customers are happy because they think they're getting a great deal, they are more likely to spread your company through word of mouth and and such, which gives you a great uh, way to market without spending any money. So here's a on-topic but off-topic question. Is it possible to copyright your pricing? So let's say if there are nine other competitors out there for a product and I have that same idea, I'm like, you know what? I think I can build this product better than what they've done. And so I just go and look at their pricing and then just basically copy how they are charging their users. So you already have an idea of the market, what people are used to seeing for a certain kind of charge. For example, I know that for Railscast, for you know its entire pro-life, they charge $9 a month. Well, initially... I know Go Rails and you know other places also kept that same subscription, but you know with inflation and stuff, they've upped their prices a bit. Same with Drift to Ruby, but I think that's you know my initial approach to something like that. But I don't know how morally correct that is to kind of take the research that other companies have done and adopt it yourself. So the the initial question of whether you can copyright your pricing model. I would say that if you're in the realm where you think you have a novel enough pricing pricing tier structure that you think you can copyright it, you're probably in the weeds and your model is too complicated. That's one thing that you want to take into account when you're thinking about how to price something. If a customer can't easily tell how much they're going to be spending with you, it's it's a detractor from them wanting to convert and become a customer of yours because it's confusing. So I, I wouldn't think that copywriting a price a pricing model would would make a lot of sense in in any case that I can think of. But interesting thing that you brought up about like whether it's morally correct to basically take on the market research that your competitors have done. I don't really I don't see a moral problem with that because that's what everybody does. It's the natural thing to do. I take the view that the natural thing to do is usually not morally morally incorrect. Yeah, as far as complex pricing goes, I think AWS wins the cake there. Definitely. It's really not until after like the first two or three months of that product that I have hosted up there do I actually realize what I'm actually going to get charged. Even their calculators are so like overly complicated. Yep. When you're a larger business and you have hundreds or thousands of servers with AWS and you you have to account for what you spent... And everything, and you're uh, you get a hundred page invoice from AWS, and it's, it's overwhelming. They try to match the value that they're giving you, but that ends up being complicated. But complicated is probably the right decision in in a case like a hosting platform. So, and then you have good old Google's pricing, which I've used them for a bit, and it was the weirdest thing. So I had a application that was up there, and their pricing was relatively clear. It says you're going to be charged this amount per month per 10,000 requests for this particular service. I'm like, okay, that's that's not too bad. So I signed up for them and it gets a lot of traffic to those different API endpoints. And then I see the bills and it shows like three times that charge amount. But then they have this 
like obfuscated credit for whatever reason. And then I get a low or free bill every month. I'm like, what is this credit? Where is it coming from? And how is that even getting applied? Am I going to lose it one day? Now have a $500 a month charge or what? So it's crazy what companies do to wiggle around different things. Definitely. And then custom pricing for like, you're committing to spend this much amount with with them. Or I think both AWS and GCP have burst instances versus like commit instances where you where you say I'm basically leasing this compute time for this amount of time and you get a lower price. And that's actually stated. But then if you're a company who's looking to move their, say you're, um, I don't know, Facebook or something, and Facebook wants to move over to Google, they can say, hey, we want to move to you. Let's, what price will you give me? And so they don't really pay sticker price. Oh, yeah. Sorry, just one more rent item and then I'll be done renting. Because because this rent. isn't a technical talk today, I can't really bash on JavaScript too much. So I have to bash on something else. But I did get my obligatory JavaScript mention in there. So one thing that I absolutely hate about some companies and I will actively refuse to use their service is if they have zero transparency in their pricing and they just have a form to say, contact us for pricing. Like, I don't know how much churn they get or loss of business, but I know for one, I won't contact them. Yeah, that's a common thing that companies do to make sure that they only get highly qualified leads into their sales team or their marketing team or their you know two-person founders. If you're familiar with uh, Tuple, which is a fairly new company by uh, Ben Orenstein and his co-founders, Spencer and Joel, they, for a long time, and I think they still do, they don't have like pricing or anything on their page. They just say, hey, if you're interested in our product, send us an email and we'll get back to you. And the reason they do that is twofold. It's just the three of them, so they don't have bandwidth to just deal with sales calls all day. Um, I, that's fallen on Ben as the as the like CEO role, but also it, it just helps them weed weed out people who aren't really serious about using their product, which I, I think is uh, useful for what what they're doing. Are, aren't they still in like beta? So Ben's been talking on his podcast about coming out of beta fairly soon, and I, I but then he. I think basically when you when you say enter your email, they immediately send you an invite link now. So they're they're like out of beta but not saying it. And I think it's purely for those reasons. They also used that the period of doing this to fine-tune their pricing because they they didn't really know what people would be willing to pay. So I, I guess I didn't say what they do. Uh, it's a pair programming application that makes the basically screen here years ago only better. So they, they sell to teams of those developers uh, have different budgets. So if they're selling to you know a Stripe or a, a Facebook or whatever, those companies have you know endless money to spend, and they would rather know that they're going to be supported, so they're willing to spend more money than uh, say if DevChat.tv wanted to have Tuple, it's a, a small team and not as much money to spend as those large companies. Right. I've been watching Tuple closely and. I'm trying to get Eric to buy it for us at Code Fund. Yeah, it definitely looks great. I remember, uh, what was it, Screen Hero? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was super nice. And then I got bought by Slack and kind of disappeared. And I talked to Ben a few years ago when he was starting to get this going. It, it might have been earlier this year or last year. I don't remember. 
But yeah, he mentioned that essentially that's what they were aiming for was like, it was a great service and we want it back. So it's still that obfuscation of pricing. You know, for example, I was building Drift and Ruby and I wanted to take in payments so people could access the post subscription. And at the time, I was working for Sage and Sage has their own merchant services division or had, I don't follow them, so I don't know what they're doing now. And, you know, I thought I work for the company and I should support the company. And so I went on their payments website and I could not find anything about their pricing or their fees or anything. It just says, contact me to learn more. I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I ended up going to Stripe and, you know, I might have lost out on some big savings. I might not have. I have no idea. But it's just that thing of like giving away my information, even though I worked for Sage at the time, but still just putting in my email address and all that on a form. Just don't like it. Yeah, I hear that. So I'm kind of curious because pricing seems to be one of those funny things where within certain boundaries, depending on what you're buying, people are pretty comfortable, right? You price it at $7 or $8 or $9, you're probably not going to see a major difference in how many people buy. Then you know maybe there's a cutoff point, you go to $10 and it drops way off. Or maybe it's just a gradual curve. And so you just kind of figure out where the difference is going to be. And so yeah, it sounds like you all pulled together a some form of programmatic price setting that helped you figure out where that sweet spot was. What did that look like? Yeah, so let, let's talk quickly about the, the model that I talked about in the, the RailsConf talk. So the idea is that you have a survey that you give after you show them the product. So the, showing them the, the product is, you can have different levels of fidelity. You can show them just a mock-up on paper and tell them how it will work. You can have a, a fully functioning product. You can have a prototype. I find that having something that actually shows them how it will work and what it will look like and what it will do gets you better answers. After you show them or describe to them how it works, you then give them a survey. And the survey is four questions. The first question is, at what price would this this product or service be too cheap that you wouldn't want to pay for it? The second question is, at what price would this product or service be a good deal for that price? Third is, at what price is it starting to get expensive? And then fourth is when it's too expensive to even consider. So it's just above your budget. And you ask that of a bunch of people and you then do a little bit of math and form um, CDFs, continuous distribution functions, to out of those answer, answers. So then you, then you know that at, at say, $22, 50% of the people say that it's a good deal. And then you look for intersections in those curves. Well, we definitely should make sure there's a, a link to a picture of what this looks like in the show notes because it's really easy to understand once you look at it. But you look for inflection points where those curves intersect. So you look for the curves for where people say it's too cheap and too expensive. And that gives you like the point where people are most likely to change their opinion if you were to increase or decrease from there. You also look for where people say it's cheap and expensive. So cheap is where it's a good deal and then expensive is where it's starting to get expensive. And that gives you where people are kind of indifferent about a price. And those, along with where there's large jumps and where people say it's too expensive or too cheap, 
you look at all those numbers and, and points on the graph, and then you, you have a lot more under, understanding of how people feel uh, about the price of the product. So it gives you a range of prices to look at. And from there, you can make the decision about how you're going to price it. In the original paper, the original paper, I think, is from 1974. And it's, a, it's a, actually a really easy read if you're not familiar with reading academic papers. But you can also combine these things where you, where you say, okay, what's the value of product A? And then you have the, say you have an add-on that you could add on, add on to that. You could uh, ask them for how much they think the, the add-on is worth. But then you can also do the, the combination. And that, that gives you an idea of how you can tier your pricing for more than one product or add-ons to a product and give people either exactly the value they're expecting, more, more value or less value than, than they're expecting, which allows you to form marketing channels or if you're Scrooge McDuck, try to extract the maximum value of, uh, out of every transaction. Yeah, and it's crazy too because when talking about pricing, I think something like that works with just one region. But if you are selling on a global scale, it gets so much more complicated because basically in each region, the dollar value, let's say, is so different where $10 a month in the United States for your target audience might be a great price point. But in other countries where the dollar is much stronger than their currency, it could be you know, just way too expensive for them. Yeah, that, that's one thing that I run into as well when I put stuff out there. Like we've done t-shirts and stuff like that. and Yeah, or the online conferences. Yeah, some people come in and they're like, what you're asking for a ticket or for a shirt is way more than I can afford. Yeah, and, and then you have different things that you can do for that. One of the things that is not immediately obvious is uh, so you, you're going to you're going to survey people that you you know are in your target audience, but particularly toward the beginning of a business, you might not realize that you have more than one target audience that you're selling to. For example, we actually did this at Flywheel in order to help price our white label product, and the white label product was intended for small agencies to start white labeling their hosting to their customers and start getting a, a, a small amount of recurring revenue from their customers. Because agencies like freelancers have that boomer bust cycle where they have a lot of business at one time and then they go through a lull where they can't drum up any business. So having a bit of recurring revenue can help them even out the ups and downs of, of contract work. What we didn't realize is, when we sent out the survey is that we sent it not only to agency partners at small agencies, but we also sent them to agencies that are like very big agencies with very high paying clients. So we actually had a lot of noise in our data that we had to figure out how to deal with. One of the questions of that we had answers to for what's a good price for this, m most people were on that lower end where they, they wanted a certain price for the product. But then we had a, a couple agencies, uh, and that was, you know, I don't, I don't remember the numbers off, offhand, but we'll, we'll say on the order of uh, $100 a month. But some people from the vantage point that they were sitting at these higher-end agencies were saying $10,000 a month, is I'd be willing to pay that for it, which was really interesting and not something we were expecting. So it was kind of a, a good learning experience to have that happen to us when we ran this experiment. Hey folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. 
That's cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app, and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and... Now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice. It's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues, that's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. So typically when I do a business-to-consumer model, I will, and someone says, hey, the pricing in my country that you're asking for, it's too much. We can't afford it. So I usually have two metrics that I will use to validate that and then give them a discount. You know, especially with Drift and Ruby, I don't want to really hinder someone's ability to learn because of money. But at the same time, I would like this to become a full-time gig for me. So it can't just be given away for free, essentially. I have a family to support. But I look at McDonald's because that is a worldwide organization that has their pricing in whatever country that you want to visit. So you can see how much a cheeseburger over there costs. And then also look at the reported hourly wage that someone makes and find a correlation between the two to see if my pricing that I'm charging is way off base for where they live. Yeah, McDonald's is really interesting uh, because if you just take like the city of Chicago, the city of Chicago has both Midway and O'Hare airports in it. If you go to the McDonald's down the street from the airport, you know, a Big Mac is a certain price, I don't know, $4 or whatever. And you go a mile down the road and you're in the airport, the, the same burger is 9 to $13. And <laughs> it's just because the, the, it's a captive market that they have in the airport so that, that they can do that. People complain about it, but they're not going to hold, hold a grudge against McDonald's or whatever because th- they want to eat in the airport and that's the option that they have. Yeah. Uh, for things like online conferences and, and stuff where you, you want to make them available to people, I've heard of some really interesting things that people do. I think it's Sandy Metz will, um, if you send her a, a postcard, mm-hmm. she'll send you the book, the ebook version of her book for free. Uh, like that's a, a, a fun way to just get a little bit of culture from another place and learn a little bit about the people who are reading your book. And yeah, she's giving it away for effectively free, but that's okay because it's a small portion of her audience and she just wants the goodwill. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting too. I mean, a lot of it comes down to convenience as well. Um, I remember flying into uh, Tampa for a conference in Orlando, right? And I saved myself about $300 by flying into Tampa and renting a car over the cost that it would have cost me to fly directly to Orlando. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting, you know, what the circumstances are that make the pricing make sense. Yep. It totally depends on your view of the world of how you want to approach that. I think that making it easy for your 
customers to be happy with you is is a good thing. But that also leads people to underprice a lot. Um, if, if you're familiar with Patrick McKinsey, also known as Patio Eleven, he like his his mantra is charge more, basically. Yeah. Because w- when you start collecting money for the first time from customers, there's a lot of ego in that where uh, you're just you're not confident in actually taking money. Like either you have the imposter syndrome or you just don't really think that what you're doing is valuable. So having a tool like this price sensitivity meter makes it so you can see the value beforehand as long as you don't bias your respondents' answers. Yep. So can you talk about the too cheap portion of the graph a bit? Because, you know... If it's a non-reputable company that you see on eBay or something like that, and if they are pennies on the dollar cheaper than the recognized brand name, then yeah, that's a red flag for me. So that's like almost too cheap, too good to be true. But then you have something where a online retailer that has been reputable in the community for a period of time, now they're introducing a pricing model and if they price it too cheap, then people will think, you know, it's too good to be true. But would you mind just talking about that for a little? Yeah. So the example that I gave in the talk, I, I think, is a, a pretty good one. So if you're looking at something like that, that's a commodity, like a, a granola bar or hosting that, ha- that sa- has the same stated uptime or things like that, the sensitivity to price is a lot higher for people. So... It, like a kind bar is a, a dollar a bar if you go buy them from the store, I think. But like the market leaders are, uh, you know, those Quaker Oats granola bars where they're probably 50 cents a bar and they sell a lot more because they're a lot cheaper than the kind bars. But when it comes to something like a car, I said earlier, I have a seven month old, like I want a safe car for my my daughter. Now, cars are kind of rough because there's the same brands every years, but like if there was a new entrant in the market and they were, you know, the cars that I'm used to buying are, we'll say $20,000 and a new entrant in the market for the same type of car was $5,000 or, or, or something like that for a brand new car. I'm not sure that I would consider it because I would wor- be worried about the safety of that car. There's a lot of information that is wrapped up in, in a price that comes down to basically a single number. And that too cheap hinges on that price. So if the customer knows that the product you're selling typically costs, you know, $50 a month and you're offering it at 10, it's going to cost cause them to ask why. Since we're Ruby programmers, like we tend to sell software, maybe it's just that we don't really care to make a lot of money and that could be basically our brand. We we we're selling you your stuff at cost. But usually lower price things have less support or are less stable or any variety of things that make people think that they're too cheap and you you don't want to price low enough that people think it's too cheap because they won't purchase due to lack of confidence. So I'm kind of curious, you know, where, where, where did you wind up landing with all this stuff? So for our study that we did, like I said, we had to, we had to figure out how to filter out the, the two different cohorts. And we, we decided to focus on the original target audience of that small agency and uh, based on the, the indifference price and where there were thresholds and where people were saying it was too expensive, we ended up with a price that was $149 a month. And we decided while it was in beta to discount it to $99 a month. 
And we did that because we had built the product and it worked, but we weren't planning to spend a lot of time on it. So we wanted to discourage people who were not well qualified for the product to purchase it. So we, we chose a higher price. Fast forward a couple years in time, uh, the price is now $49 a month because the way that the business decided to grow, it made sense to start getting more people onto the platform in order to help convert actual hosting customers. So it's, it's an add-on that allows them to white-label hosting. So if we get more people using that product, we can then get them to convert to sell more hosting, which is a, our, our flagship product. So we're using it kind of as a sales driver at this point. So it's a lower price. But the price that we choose for like what it costs us as a business is basically immaterial. So we're just using it for a sorting mechanism. I like it. So, so do you have future plans to continue to you know, figure some of this stuff out then? Or are you kind of settled? Yeah, like I, I like the tool. It's pretty easy to do if you're confident in your math skills or your spreadsheet skills. I have this um, thing called a computer. It does all yeah. that stuff for me. Yeah, well, you have to tell the computer how to do the math. Um, fair, there, fair. As far as I know, there isn't a a product out here that out there out there that does it for you. I, I had an idea to make that product, but uh, I have since changed the direction of what I would want to be working on. But the product that I'm currently working on, I want to use this as as a way to figure out what to price. Mostly because I have no idea what people would be willing to pay for it. So I, I'm going to use that for figuring out what it's worth to people and we'll price accordingly. I'm not sure if there's anything else that I have that I want to go into, Dave. Yeah, I think that no matter what you do, no matter what pricing, as your graph shows, now I looked it up, people are always going to be mad about it and they're always going to complain about it. And you just have to stick with whatever you went with. You know, that people will either never use your product because they think it's too expensive, in which case, you know what? If they if you give them a discount or you know make them you know happy at that moment, well, it's just a matter of time before they say, "Well, can you do even better than that?" So I think kind of it's a lose lose battle with you know you always have some exceptions to the rules, and if you price it too high, well, you know same thing yeah, and the nice thing about the, the this tool is that it gives you the ability to see roughly how how many people there will be that say that are vocal about it. And if the negative press of people talking about it on social media is something that matters to you, your company, your brand, then you can take that into account. In that case, if I was worried about the negative press, I would probably lean back, lean on the thing that annoys you, Dave, and, and just have private pricing because... <laughs> uh, like It's not really worth trying trying to chase leads that aren't well qualified. So the the whole idea is that you you only really want people buying your product that are going to be well served by the product and the people who are well served are going to be willing to pay for it what it, what it's worth. Yeah. And then you always have the group of people who feel like they got a deal. So, you know, take Coles for instance. I think they are the monolith of this example where they just naturally, you know what, we're going to charge 300% what we should for every item in our store. And then we're just going to flood the market with all kinds of coupons and, you know, Kohl's cash and all this other junk. So people end up paying like $1 below MSRP for an item. They're like, wow, I got such a good deal. I got 80% off this item. But in reality, like, did they? Did they really? Yeah. So... 
Yeah, Coles is interesting because it's all it's all smoke and mirrors. If you remember uh, a a couple years ago when um, J.C. Penney hired their new CFO, I, I think he was, and they changed to just flat pricing, their sales tanked because they had over the past forty years conditioned their customers that you shop at J.C. Penney a couple times a year when they have their their sales and you get 80% off of the price and that's when you go shopping at JCPenney. But when they moved to not having sales and the price is the price and they also had, uh, they also did kind of a Walmart thing where they had like prices ending in sevens and ending in eights and nines, their target audience had been conditioned to behave a certain way. So making that radical change was really bad from a business perspective, even though it's likely that they were actually giving their customers on average a better deal because they no longer had the loss leaders that that they had on sale to get people in the store. And then once you're in the store, you buy more, whether it's on sale or not. That was a really interesting natural experiment. Yeah, this is stuff that we talk about a lot with some of my other friends who are who run businesses, right? Do you price it so you make money on it or do you price it so that people will come to your website or both or neither, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Do you give them other opportunities to buy or not? It's really, really interesting to see where it all fits. Yeah, discounting is an interesting thing too. Um, so at Flywheel, we do, we do two annual sales. We do Fly July, which is uh, in July, and then we do Black Friday, which is uh, Black Friday. <laughs> so... Our long-term customers know that we have sales then. So if they can really wait to buy hosting for their customer, they, they might do that and, and spend less money on that subscription for a year. But really, our audience is such that you need hosting when you need hosting. <laughs> so it, you're not really going to wait months in order to make that purchase. You might maybe go purchase elsewhere and then move to us when, when you know there's a sale. But really, it's the, it doesn't probably affect our sales with our returning customers and it's it's great for getting new customers on board in those months so we have we have a lot of sale value out of those months yeah there's a lot of debate out there as to whether yeah offering discounts you know regular sales leads people to yeah wait until the sale or whether it gets people off the fence and i think the answer is probably yes yeah definitely and it's it totally depends on what you're selling if it's something that's time sensitive then yeah, the, the sale probably doesn't uh, need to wait. It, it it won't wait. And if it's something where people are indifferent on when they purchase it, then maybe the sale will get you more business at that time. Yep. Do you approach the sales then the same way you've been approaching pricing for everything else? Uh, we always do. We've had the same sale as long as I've been at the company, and I've, and I've been there over three years. So we we do. Uh, I want to say it's you get an extra month free on an annual subscription, and you can also upgrade current subscriptions to annual and get that discount. We don't play around with discounts there. And we haven't really played around with pricing a whole lot other than looking at the market and shifting other than this white label study. Yeah, I hear you. It's definitely interesting though, because yeah, you you did all this work to figure out the the pricing. And then I was just wondering, yeah, do you apply it to the sales or not? And it sounds like not really. You just give people another incentive to sign up. Yep. The sale is really just a, a lead generation tool. Mm-hmm. Cool. So if I wanted to build this into my system, am I going to wind up building it from scratch? Because you said there aren't really any good systems out there for this. Yeah. So the the way I heard about this, there's a company called Meatspace that makes a 
tool a lot like Zoom, just a video conferencing tool. The solo founder was trying to figure out how to price it and he came across this. And he wrote a blog post about how it works and what he did and how it worked out for him. And it turns out that the I, th- I think he landed on $8 a month per seat, which is what he was originally thinking. So it, it actually it validated his original assumption. But he wrote a blog post about his experience and wrote a Google sheet that will do it for you. But beyond that, I'm, I'm ProfitWell, also known as Price Intelligently, might have a tool that does something similar to this. I don't know of any automated tools that do it off the shelf other than building your own spreadsheet. Nice. The hard part is not really building the spreadsheet. It's figuring out how you want to address errors in the data. So because you're asking questions via a survey, survey data is notoriously low-quality data. You really don't want to bias their answers at all. So what we found is that we had people say that you know $5 a month was, was too cheap, but that they would feel... was a great deal. In the model, that doesn't make any sense at all. So we had to figure out how to correct those. The original paper um, basically says ignore uh, ignore things like that and fix them, put them in order, and it'll all work out. I think they saw that in their sample, it it caused like a 2% error. And 2% when you're dealing with dollars and cents is like, basically nothing because you're not going to price something for $8.62. So the error that you introduce from correcting it is is minimal. But if you're somebody who's very analytical or uh, has like a, a statistics or machine learning background, that might not sit with you. So you have to f- figure out how you want to deal with correcting the data. And that was probably the time intensive part, figuring out what didn't make sense and, fi- and fixing the data. Awesome. All right. Anything else we should jump on here before we do picks? I think that's Roughly all I got for talking about pricing at the moment, unless you have specific questions, but it sounds like you've asked them all. Yep, I think so. Have you ever felt like JavaScript is just everywhere? Well, we have. We actually had a conversation on JavaScript Jabber about what you can build with JavaScript. We've also talked about what JavaScript is and how we're inspired by the language. If you're interested in JavaScript or doing web development, then you definitely need to check out JavaScript Jabber. You can find it at javascriptjabber.com. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you want to throw some picks out for us? Yeah, sure. So the first is one that I can't remember if I picked previously or even in the past week on Rogues, but it is Yarn Upgrade-Interactive. So if you are using Webpacker on your Rails application, and if you want to upgrade your JavaScript libraries, then Yarn Upgrade-Interactive is a great way to get a visual to see what version you're currently on and what version is available. And they'll just update those packages. So really nice little UI. I like it a lot. And the other one is my kids and I are completely all about Legos right now. We are so into making cars and crazy things with it. So the Lego 4x4, it's a 2019 Lego Technic set. And it is like definitely way pricey. So it took us a bit to save up for that one. But... That thing is amazing. We have a whole bunch of like blocks and other toys that we'll just dump in a pile and just get this little Lego 4x4 to climb over them and all that kind of stuff. It's been a whole lot of fun. Nice. I've got a couple of picks that I'm going to throw out that are very much less tangible, I guess. So uh, I've, I've been kind of going through a bunch of stuff this week and 
Anyway, the timing was pretty fortuitous. I had a, a trip to Nashville planned when things started to go down. So I went to Nashville and it was for this retreat with a bunch of guys that I talk to every week. There are about 10 guys in the group that I'm in that I talk to. And then there are about 150 guys total across all the groups in the organization. We talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about business. We talk about family. We talk about faith because it's a Christian group. We talk about you know, a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, the, the Christian group, I mean, it's very Baptist leaning, but I haven't really felt that out of place, you know, not being Baptist, but still being, you know, a believer in Christ. So the point that I'm really making is that I keep hearing about this epidemic of loneliness and, uh, you know, lack of human connection. And I just want to encourage people to go find some human connection, right? It doesn't have to be on this deep spiritual level. And to be honest with the guys that I talk to, a lot of times it really isn't. So, you know, it, it can be on whatever level you need. So, I mean, if you're into music, go find a bunch of people that you can hang out and do music with and do life with, right? If you're into something else, then go find people that do that. I've made a lot of friends at programming users groups, but, you know, go out, make friends and, and then just find opportunities to be a human. And then the other aspect of this was that the event was fairly planned. And so I didn't have a ton of time to do things like look at Twitter or, you know, any of the other places where, you know, some of the stuff was coming up. And so it was nice just to disconnect. And I can't tell you how much, you know, how much it helps sometimes just to be able to disconnect. So if you're trying to deal with life, and sometimes it's just because life's hard, and sometimes it's a season in life that, you know, things are going on, but just take a minute, right? Or a day or two, just turn off all the noise you know, in my case, I also had the opportunity to spend a bunch of time with people that care about me and, and are there for me. And between the two, it was really, really helpful. So I'm going to pick that. I'm going to pick, uh, you know, finding human connection. And I'm also going to pick disconnecting when you need to. So anyway, those are kind of the, the picks that I've got. Um, I don't really have anything tangible that I'm going to shout out about. But yeah, and these guys offered me a ton of perspective on a bunch of stuff too. So those are my picks. Michael, do you have some picks? Yeah, related to your unplugging, I, I, hiking is one of my my favorite things to do. Whenever I go on a long hike, it's it's just a, a great way to just reset myself, and and I always feel energized despite being tired at the end. So hiking is always one of my picks. But I've got a, a, a dad pick. My daughter's one of her favorite toys is uh, this crinkle book from Jelly Cat. It's something that whenever she's like feeling grumpy, we, we kind of bring out and it just always picks her right up. If you are going to be a parent soon or are a parent of an infant, definitely pick up a Jelly Cat Crinkly book. On a computer-related note, I read an interesting blog post this morning by uh, Felipe Fadio about an, uh, an interesting workflow for making, your, uh, making it easy to add development gems in your bundle file without having to actually modify the, bu the bundle file that the project uses. I think this is going to make it a lot easier for me to do a lot of open source work because I, I often like, I want to use Pry in order to get into a, a context to figure out what's going on. And often the gem file doesn't include Pry, so I have to modify that and then need to remember to... Uh, undo that before I commit and it's just a pain. So I, th I think this workflow will help me with that. And then one last pick I discovered, uh, if you've read The Martian by Andy Weir or seen the movie, 
he has a, 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 a very short story called The Egg that he posted many years ago on his, uh, his personal site. I read it yesterday and I'm still thinking about it. So yeah, go check out The Egg by Andy Weir. Awesome. Michael, if people want to find you online, uh, Twitter, GitHub, places like that, where, where do they find you? I'm very infrequently on Twitter at, at mherold, M-H-E-R-O-L-D. I do a lot of open source work on and off based on family schedule on GitHub at Michael Harold. I'm a maintainer for Hashi. So if you are interested in, get, in dipping your toe into open source, feel free to pop in Hashi and see if you want to address any issues. And uh, I have a, an infrequently updated blog at michaeljherald.com. So that's where you can find me on the interwebs. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. And in the meantime, everybody, max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>